Ah, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? I'll, I'll move closer to the mic. Good morning. I'm Joan Devine. I'm the pediatric outreach nurse for Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. Thank you all for coming today on this blustery day. Did you all have snow on the way in? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. We're in a nice, warm, cozy environment today. So um, this is School Health Environment. I'm sorry, School Health Symposium. Best care of body, mind, and soul of a student. Um, so we have a little bit of everything today. We, I'd like to thank my planning committee before I get started. Since I'm not a school nurse, I really need feedback from all of you. So Candy Natty from Hanover High and Pam Hausler, who's right there, Candy's over there, uh, were instrumental in putting today's program together. So um, I have a few minutes to talk, not to bore you, but um, I want to keep us on track today, time-wise. First, we'll hear from Wendy Wright. Wendy has been with us a few times, and many of you asked to have Wendy come back and for an encore, and so she's here today to talk about emerging infectious disease. Then um, uh, transgenderism has become quite a, an interesting topic for a lot of school nurses, as well as a lot of uh, clinical nurses, basically everyone. And so Dr. John Turco, who runs our transgender clinic here in Lebanon, will come and speak about what your role is in terms of transgender students. Then we'll have a break. Then after a break, uh, Jean Coffey is coming to speak out about um, nature. Jean is um, a nurse practitioner and works here in our nursing research office. And she um, did research on I think she calls it the science of naturism or something to that effect. Basically, how important it is to get your students or children outside in nature and all the benefits they can derive from being out in nature. And she did this wonderful project. But I'll let her tell you all about it. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, then we'll have lunch. So lunch, it will be outside on the tables. You can eat wherever you'd like. I've given you an hour for lunch so you can get together with your friends and uh, catch up. It'll be from Aban Pan. And then after lunch is Dr. Julia Mann. She's one of our pediatric dermatologists, and um, she'll be speaking on different infectious diseases and what you really need to be aware of. I'm sorry, not infectious diseases, dermatological issues and what you need to be aware of, what's contagious and what isn't. And then finally, we do have a change in our program. Unfortunately, Dr. San Loud is called away in a family emergency, so Dr. Kathy Shupkin will be filling in for her. Uh, Kathy is an adolescent health medicine um, physician, and uh, I believe she's spoken with you before in the past on contraception. So Kathy will be filling in for uh, Nina San Loud, and then we finish up at 3 p.m. Um, in terms of evaluations, we really need your evaluations. That's what we really look at when we plan our programs. You will be receiving a link in an email from clpd.support.team. And that link uh, will bring you to the evaluation tool, fill that out, and then claim your credits. So in your handouts today, there is an attendance tracking record, and that's your own personal copy, so you don't have to hand that in. Just keep track of your own credits that way, and then um, claim all your stuff online. And you should be getting that probably, what's today, Thursday? Probably, um, maybe Friday, but probably next week. Is that everything? The, uh, in case you missed them, the restrooms, there's one out here to the end of this hallway. And then if you go out in the major hallway, there are plenty out there. So why don't we get started then? We can start a little bit early since I think the room's pretty much full. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Wendy Wright. 
Um, as you, many of you know, Wendy is an adult primary care nurse practitioner. She graduated from Simmons College in Boston, Massachusetts. She also completed a family nurse practitioner postmaster's program. Um, she's the owner of two nurse practitioner operated clinics within New Hampshire, Wright and Associates down in Amherst and one in Concord. And she's also the owner of Partners in Healthcare Education, which is a medical education company. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the New Hampshire State Excellence Award, the 2009 New Hampshire Nurse Practitioner of the Year, the 2014 Top Five Women in New Hampshire Business Award, and in 2005, she was inducted as a fellow into the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners. Uh, she was also, in 2014, inducted as a fellow into the American Academy of Nursing. Yay, congrats Yay, on that. Thank you. She's the founder of the New Hampshire chapter of in Entrepreneurial Nurse Practitioners. That's a hard one in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, also, Wendy's an adjunct faculty member at the University of Wyoming Graduate Nursing Program and in the Simmons, Simmons College DMP program in Boston. And finally, she's the, well, not finally, but she's the nurse uh, practitioner represented to the state of New Hampshire Immunization Advisory Board. And our New Hampshire immunization uh, reps are outside. So, you ready? Thank you. I'm ready. Let's do it. Hi, good morning. So good to see so many of you. I recognize you from my, my speaking previously with uh, school nurses. So thank you so much for coming out this morning. It was sunny when I left Bedford, New Hampshire this morning. And what a snow squall, huh? So let's jump right into infectious diseases. This actually could be an entire day. So I'm going to try to give you quick bullet points. And one of the things about this lecture is I've included information that may not be particular to students, but maybe particular to you. Because I think that when you come to these lectures, many of us have family members, many of us are, are of certain ages, and this information will pertain to you as well. So let's, uh, so for purposes of CE disclosure, you will see that on the first slide of every lecture I ever do are my disclosures. These are companies with whom I've been affiliated within the last year so that you can evaluate this lecture for any type of commercial bias. We're going to talk about viral and bacterial and spirochetial infections today. I am going to ask you to hold questions until we get to the end, and then hopefully we have enough time that I can answer some of your questions. Uh, but we're going to talk about some of the testing that's available to make these diagnoses. What should you be telling kids? What should you be telling parents? And what are some of the treatments? And what's, what do we see in terms of the pipeline? So let's start with Zika. Zika is a very interesting virus because we've known about Zika virus for well over 60 years. But it has only been recently that we've seen kind of the clustering of Zika that has really caused a lot of us to kind of perk our ears up and try to really pay attention to this virus. I heard someone from the World Health Organization say something about two or three months ago that to me is frightening. Here's what they said. Zika virus is today to pregnancy what rubella was to pregnancy 80 years ago. Now, if any of you remember rubella or, or know about reading about rubella, rubella is a very mild illness unless you get it when you're pregnant. Because if you contract it when you're pregnant, 80% of babies that are exposed to rubella in utero are born with a congenital rubella syndrome, hearing impairments, vision impairments, developmental abnormalities. They're saying Zika today is the rubella 
of 60 to 70 years ago, which is very, very frightening. So this is what's called an arborvirus. It's transmitted by a mosquito that when we first started learning about, our, uh, about Zika, we thought that these mosquitoes historically bite only during the day. That has been refuted recently. So I don't know about you all here, but I don't usually get bitten by mosquitoes during the day here in New Hampshire. It's more later in the afternoon in dusk. What we now know about this mosquito is it bites all day long. It does like the daytime and the heat a little bit better, but it can bite day and evening. What we also know about this virus is only one out of five people that get bitten by the mosquito are actually going to develop symptoms, yet they will be infected. So the hard part with Zika is we have people going to Brazil, we have people going to Puerto Rico, they're getting bit by this mosquito, they're picking up Zika, they're coming home, they're getting pregnant, and they didn't know that they had Zika. And therein lies the issue is that one out of five will actually get symptoms, the other four will not. The problem with Zika is it has now been identified in terms of it is now transmitted in utero. So it can be transmitted in utero. It can also be transmitted male to female, female to male, and male to male, and female to female. So all different types of sexual exposure have now been documented to actually pass Zika. If someone is symptomatic, it's generally a relatively mild illness. It's fever, it's chills, it's a maculopapular rash, it's a non-purulent conjunctivitis, they ache a little bit, they have a low-grade headache, but it's relatively mild. The reason we now are really studying this, or why wasn't it studied before? Because it's identical to dengue fever. And so in the countries where it was first identified, people thought this was dengue until we started to see some of the sequelae. On average, the symptoms are going to last three to seven days. The other virus that it's very similar to is one called chikungunya. Chikungunya was very big two years ago, and the hotbed for chikungunya was the Dominican Republic. So all of our patients that were going to Punta Cana to have a beautiful time away were coming back with, with chikungunya because that really was the hotbed. We're still seeing a little bit of it, and I'm going to talk with you about it in a second. The good news with chikungunya is it's not associated with any bad outcomes. So even if we get it, we may feel miserable, but at least we're not going to harm a pregnancy or see some of the sequelae. So again, only one in five are going to develop symptoms. So what's our big concern? Let's start with the bottom bullet first. Our big concern is microcephaly in the babies. And I just read a report uh, over the last week where they have had now two babies born with a normal brain size or born with a normal head size that throughout infancy developed abnormalities. So even though it is not present at birth, there may be sequelae moving forward. I think we, and if you go to the CDC website to look at this, 
What you're gonna find on that CDC site today is gonna to be very different tomorrow. We are just learning all the implications of this virus, and I don't think we fully understand it. I also just read this past week that we are two plus years away from having a vaccine that will be available to even address this issue. So we are a few years away. So the microcephaly is clearly the biggest issue because those babies are going to suffer lifetime complications as a result of that. But what we're also seeing is Guillain-Barre. And Guillain-Barre was first noticed in Brazil, and it's now been seen throughout the United States. And I'm going to show you some statistics for when I put this lecture together at the end of the year, um, 2016, but you'll see that we're already seeing cases of Guillain-Barre here in the United States as well. Do you all know what Guillain-Barre is? It's one of those conditions that we always ask about before we give the influenza vaccine. It's a progressive paralysis. The good news is most people recover, but if they've had Guillain-Barre, particularly from a flu vaccine, we can't give them the flu vaccine moving forward. So we've known about this since 1947. It was actually named for the Zika for forest that is found in Uganda. And the first cases, no one really put two and two together because it was very similar to other diseases and um, they just weren't seeing the huge complications. So here we go. This was at the end of last year as I was putting together the Emerging Infectious Disease Lecture. And what you can see here is this is Zika virus reports in the United States. The more dark blue, the more reports they've had. You can see New Hampshire's in that lighter, New Hampshire and Vermont, lighter blue, so we haven't had nearly as many cases. But let's take a look at this top little bullet. I know it's tiny, but this is from the CDC website up on the left-hand side. 185 locally acquired mosquito-borne cases. So people often think, well, you know what? This is in Brazil. This is in South America. This is in Puerto Rico. It's only a matter of time. We knew before the mosquitoes that are in Puerto Rico are going to be in Florida, that are going to be in the Gulf states, that are going to be in Texas. So we are already seeing locally acquired cases. And there was a big hubbub, you know, a big conversation about this in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in Miami, in some of those kind of tropical areas. It's calmed down a little bit, but you can see we've already started to see cases here in the United States and people didn't travel. What about travel associated cases? Over 4,000 now in the United States been reported. Interesting, one laboratory acquired case. So someone working with the virus picked it up and then we've had a total of about 4,600 cases, 38 are sexually transmitted and you can see here in the United States we've now had at least 13 cases of Guillain-Barre reported out to the CDC. So it is certainly something for all of us to just keep on our radar screen. And here's the key. The key is prevention. The key is making sure that if people are traveling to countries where this is very common, that they are wearing mosquito repellent. That is one of the keys. And pregnant women should be advised not to travel to any areas where it has been isolated. Now, I had someone in a lecture I did just a few weeks ago say, I'm pregnant, but my parents are going to Puerto Rico. Should I stay away from my parents? The answer is no. It's not spread airborne. It has to be spread through intimate contact. So again, I'm not worried about that, but if women are pregnant and they pick this virus up, it could result in microcephaly. And the GYN folks have a whole protocol. Women undergo ultrasounds, serial ultrasounds throughout that pregnancy. If someone travels to those areas, it is advised that they use condoms and what we are now recommending is at least six months.
even if they don't have symptoms, to be safe, they should defer pregnancy for at least six months and use condoms to ensure that that virus is out of their system. It has also been identified in blood donation. However, we are not universally testing at this time. We, we are not sure about the breast milk. It has not been identified as being transmitted through breast milk, um, but the DNA has been isolated. So again, the conservative approach is prevention is the key. Don't go to those areas if you're going to become pregnant or someone is, and six months is what should be done to delay a pregnancy. The state is asking that all concerned people with potentially this virus, that their blood be done through a state laboratory testing. Now, there is some commercial testing available throughout the United States, but most states are saying, and most labs are saying, you need to go through the state to confirm this up, because what they really want to be able to do is track any of the complications so that we can really learn about this virus. So while commercial testing is available, both urine and blood, the state wants that testing to be done through their state laboratory. Also, what do we do to treat it if someone is infected? We do nothing. Symptomatic treatment, there's nothing we can do. Acetaminophen, NSAIDs, if they're a kid, obviously no aspirin due to the risk of rise syndrome. And that recommendation is all the way up now through 19 years of age. We need to be advising no 19-year-old uh, or under should take any type of salicylate or aspirin-based product. So here is from the CDC website. So we believe that men have the highest risk of transmitting to women. But you can see here that for women, it's uh, eight weeks after symptoms before, uh, before they are thought to not be contagious. But from a pregnancy perspective, it is a six-month wait. All right, chikungunya. Chikungunya is also another mosquito-borne illness. 300 cases have been confirmed in the United States. The majority of these cases come from the Caribbean. I told you that the Dominican Republic is really the hotbed uh, and has been for a while. This was first identified in East Africa in the 1950s. Again, fever, polyarthralgia, so multiple joint aches, and in fact, we've had a couple of patients with chikungunya, and what I would tell you about chikungunya is it looks like parvovirus in terms of how it presents. You all familiar with parvo, also known as Fifth's disease? And if you've ever seen Fifth's in an adult, they don't get that slap cheek appearance. What they get is polymya uh, polyarthralgias. Their joints ache like crazy. This is how it looks as well. They can also have a rash. They can have a low platelet count. So thrombocytopenia, low platelet. And they often have an elevated creatinine and can have a fever. Last seven to 10 days, we were actually able to confirm chikungunya through the lab we have on site, which we have Quest in our office. So we're able to draw the blood right in our lab and confirm it up. Again, it's fairly similar to dengue fever. Nothing we do about it. And the good news is with this, there's no long-term complications that we see. There are vaccine clinical trials already going on. People have already started to receive the chikungunya vaccine. And what we're seeing is that the antibody response is already looking very good. So we're not that far away from having this available if, um, if all goes well. So the World Health Organization came out to say the following. There are one million cases of gonorrhea diagnosed daily in the world. 
One million cases, gonorrhea, every day in the world. It is now the second most commonly diagnosed STI here in the United States. We have had probably three or four cases in our clinic in the last, or two to three in the last year or two. So we're seeing it. And I'm here to tell you that the majority of people we are picking this up on are completely asymptomatic. They have absolutely no idea that they have gonorrhea. We've also had a case of syphilis in our clinic this year, things that I have not seen in years. So not only are we diagnosing a million cases of gonorrhea every day worldwide, there are now three countries in the world where there's not one oral antibiotic left that will eliminate this bacteria. That is frightening. We are hitting this point, particularly with gram-negative infections in the, in the United States and worldwide, where we are seeing multi-drug-resistant gram-negative infections. And it's, it's scary because we don't have antibiotics left to eradicate it. Now, thankfully, here in the United States, we still have a really good regimen. We still have a really good uh, efficacious treatment option. But... Who knows what the next 10 or 20 years will look like if we continue down the path we're on. So there is increasing antimicrobial resistance across the world. And you can see here that 25% of gonorrhea is now resistant to tetracycline, 16% to penicillin. Well, the good news is we don't use Cipro. We don't generally use tetracycline to treat this anyways. But it's just showing you how this pathogen is becoming increasingly more resistant. So there was a time, maybe five years ago, that when I treated gonorrhea, we gave people 125 milligrams of ceftriaxone. You all know this as rocephin. It, we're now using 250. And the reason we're using double the dose is we need that higher dose to actually overcome the resistance that we're seeing and to demonstrate efficacy. I will tell you that the two folks that we've seen the last year with gonorrhea are adolescents. And so it is not just your 30-year-old gay men. It is we are seeing this in teens. We are screening now all adolescent girls who are sexually active, starting at the time they're sexually active, for chlamydia. That is the recommendation that all teens sexually active, 16 up through 20, uh, we just keep going, because if you've had a new partner in the last year, we're going to screen you. We can now run gonorrhea testing off of the same test that we use for chlamydia. We just have to have these folks pee in a cup now. It's no longer a vaginal swab or a cervical swab. We can do a urine test, which makes it so great. So we are picking up both gonorrhea and chlamydia. I feel like we are an epicenter of chlamydia. And the the majority of them are adolescent girls. At this point, there's no recommendation to routinely screen adolescent boys for gonorrhea or chlamydia. It is girls that we are screening. Um, and we have about 2,000 teen girls in our clinic. So when I tell you there isn't a day that goes by that we are not seeing chlamydia, I'm not lying to you. We have a case every day. In fact, I always joke and say the state is going to shut us down. They're going to think we're doing something crazy here um, because we see so much. So when we give ceftriaxone, that's a great agent to kill off the gonorrhea. But gonorrhea can mask our ability to find chlamydia. So we also cover for chlamydia when we find gonorrhea. And that one gram of azithromycin mycin, you know of this as Zithromax, is actually um, going to cover the chlamydia, but what it's also going to do is enhance the ceftriaxone or the rocephin.
We are no longer doing tests of cures to treat for gonococcal disease because in the United States, what we have available really does work well. Now, if we don't have rocephin available, we can use something called cefixime. The brand name for that is called Suprax, if you're not familiar with that. It's an oral cephalosporin. So we can give them 400 with a gram of azithromycin. So just be aware that it's out there. We are seeing more and more cases, and we're seeing it a lot in asymptomatic adolescents who are sexually active. Let's talk about influenza. We are in the midst of heavy activity. Would you all agree with what you're seeing? Yeah. Now, in the last week or so, week and a half, what we've seen is we're having a little bit of a downward trend again, which is very typical for influenza. We really see it pick up. November, December, really hit December, January. Starts to tailor off in around mid-March. And then we see one more late surge, usually, around the end of March, early April. Up until recently, most of our cases are type A. A being the H1N1, the H9N3, or N3, H9, the different um, pandemic type of strains. What you see in the late season tends to be the B strain. So we expect, and by the way, the B strain is the strain that has been known historically to cause most of the severe diseases in kids. So late March, early April is when we historically see kind of that surgence of, uh, of flu B strain. So this I put together in December. You can see that we were already starting to see some heavier activity or moderate activity. We tend to see it a lot in the south, and then it kind of moves its way up. But right now, if you look at the CDC's map, we are in widespread activity. And I read, um, was it Monday, 15 or over the weekend, 15 people from the state of New Hampshire have died as a result of influenza this year. It is across all age groups that we are seeing death. And so as someone said to me yesterday, I'm going to just take a chance this year and not vaccinate my kids. I said to her, you don't play Russian roulette like that because all it takes is one year of influenza and people can die from it. But there's this whole perception out there that, you know, it's just the flu. People still die from it. So a couple of important messages about influenza vaccine, just as you move forward, certainly for next year, is that as soon as this vaccine gets into your clinic, you need to get it into the arms of your patient. How many of you remember years ago, we wait till October, early November to give it? Those days are over. We want it in their arms because what we're trying to do is drive up what we now call community immunity. We're trying to get more and more people protected so that before the flu truly kind of hits our area, we have millions of people immunized. And so we now also have evidence that that flu vaccine that you and I give in August, I think I gave mine August 7th this year. It was our first date that we started getting the flu. It's carrying people all the way through the end of flu season, which is May. So there's always been this concern that it's not going to protect people through the entire flu season, and it absolutely is. What you need to know about this flu vaccine this year is it's looking to be around a 48 to 49 percent efficacy. No one likes to hear that, but as I say, 50 percent of zero is zero. 
So I'd rather have 50% times one, so that I, meaning I have the flu shot in me, so that at least I have a 50% chance that it is going to be effective. And here's what I tell parents. Even if your child gets the flu, which we're seeing, we're seeing people who are immunized who are coming in with influenza. And we're swabbing their nose, so I, I know what we're seeing. But I tell them, people that are immunized are not nearly as sick as the unimmunized. So yes, no one wants influenza, but at the end of the day, if you've had the vaccine on board, the sequelae, the, the seriousness of the illness, people tend to recover quicker and they tend not to be as ill. And I think that's an important takeaway message. All right. All of us also should be getting the flu shot. I know it's always better to give than it is to receive, but at the end of the day, all of us should be protecting ourselves so that we can protect our families at home and so that we can take care of our patients as well. But I know that there's been this huge movement over the last five-ish years to kind of shame people for not getting flu vaccines and to publish records in the paper about what percentage of hospitals and their employees get the vaccine. And many of you may have seen or worked at places where you, were, you could be fired if you didn't get the flu shot. There's actually a class action lawsuit nationally uh, going after employers who are actually firing people for not getting the flu vaccine. Uh, so there's kind of a little bit less of that going on nationally than there was right after the H1N1 pandemic. But just know that they can mandate that you uh, wear a mask. That absolutely they can do. And some hospitals are still terminating if you fail, if you refuse, um, if there's no reason to not, for you to refuse. Now, why do we want kids to get vaccines and flu shots? Well, certainly because we want them to be protected themselves. But the reality is, who do they end up giving it to? Their grandparents. And historically, where are the greatest numbers of deaths from influenza? It's often the older adult. And there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, they don't mount the same immune response that you and I do. I want you to think about when you over your career have given D-taps to babies in their leg. Their thigh gets big, it's so red, they get a fever. You give a pneumococcal vaccine to a 90-year-old and she says to you, I have no idea I even got that shot. That's because they don't mount the same immune response. And so also, we're living longer with chronic diseases. Have any of you ever actually had influenza yourself? I had it in my 30s. I thought I was going to die. I actually wished death upon myself. I felt that badly. I cannot even imagine trying to recover if I'm 90. So yes, we want kids to be protected because we don't want them to be sick. We don't want them bringing it into the school. But what we're also trying to do is prevent these grandparents from getting it. Because the older we are when we get the flu, and the young, the really young folks, but the older we are when we get the flu, the more likely we are to actually be hospitalized from it and to even die from it. Here's the other thing about influenza. You may have heard this. Not only do people, are they more at risk for pneumonia following influenza, they're also more at risk for MIs, for strokes, for diabetes deaths, and kidney deaths. And the thought is that influenza triggers such 
increased inflammatory mediators that that causes inflammation in the coronary vessels, the cerebrovascular vessels. And so we know come flu season, it's not just pneumonia these people die from. They also die from other complications of diabetes, et cetera. Now, I want you to know about a vaccine that's been on the market for years, and it's called the high-dose influenza vaccine. There are now two companies that make it. It's for people 65 and older. That's the only indication. And for years, so you ask, why am I telling you about this? I'm going to show you in just a second, so just bear with me. What correlation does this have with kids? So for years, I've been going around the country saying, I think all 65 and up, this should be the shot that we give them. Because it's four times more potent than the standard flu shot. And the thought has always been, if we give these folks that high dose, maybe they'll mount a better immune response and have better protection. I never knew if that was true. I just knew antibody levels were higher. Well, now we know that in a study on 30,000 people when they, with 65 and older, when they got that high-dose flu, 24% reduction in flu and its complications. So I tell all of my older adults, 65 and up, don't get a standard flu shot. Get a high dose, because we now have evidence that it reduces flu and its complications. So why am I telling you this? I'm going to make a prediction to you. I'm probably a few years off, but my prediction is we're going to see that high dose at some point move into our immunocompromised population. Meaning, our kids that are on biologics, or our young adults that are on biologics, or getting chemo. The first study came out that they used that high dose in people under 65 who were HIV positive. And they found that they mounted a better immune response than the standard flu. So I don't want you doing it now. I just want you to know that I think we're really looking at ways that we can try to protect some of our most vulnerable younger adults and, and, um, and adults. Now, in 2011, a very important thing happened in terms of influenza. And what happened was, there's been a recommendation change in terms of flu and egg. So I'm sure you all know, how many of you remember the days that MMR, we had to ask about egg, right? And that went away a long time ago. But as I know you know, most flu shots are made from chicken combs. They're actually grown in the lab. And if any of you remember the 2009 pandemic, I still have PTSD as a result of that pandemic. But if any of you remember it, we didn't get our shots until mid-September. How come they needed to wait for the darn chickens to lay their eggs? And so there's this whole movement afoot, afoot now to find alternative production ways of making the flu shot so that if we ever get into a pandemic like that, we don't have to wait for them to grow, to lay their eggs and to culture it out, etc. So one of the things they did in 2011, and a lot of people still don't know this, is the CDC said, you may now give the flu shot to people who are egg allergic. It may be given in the office as long as there's no history of anaphylaxis. So you, we have to ask, did you have anaphylaxis to it? I have not met anyone in my career who anaphylaxis to eggs. Now, I know they exist, but I've treated a lot of people in 25 years. Most people say I'm allergic to eggs, and I say, what happens? Oh, I get diarrhea. You can absolutely get the flu shot. Absolutely. And we just have to observe them. It used to be 30 minutes. That changed this last year. We have to observe them in the office for 15 minutes after the injection. 
For people with egg anaphylaxis, they can still get the flu shot, but what is recommended is they go to a place who is trained and prepared to handle anaphylaxis should it occur, and that would be in like an allergist office someone who could handle it. But I just want you to know that we can absolutely use the flu vaccine now, even in people who are egg allergic. The other thing, and I know you haven't probably are aware, but we have not used flu mist this year, which is the live attenuated intranasal vaccine. And that was because last year had a 3% match in terms of the efficacy of that. I feel like every year I... I call it my schizophrenic approach to vaccines because many of you may remember a few years ago, CDC said every child in America should be given the intranasal vaccine. It is the better one for kids. And then last year they said no one in America ought to get it. So, so the good news is stay tuned. Next year is a whole new year. But we didn't use any flu mist or intranasal vaccine this year because last year the success with it was not good. All right, so this year, there are four strains of flu in most of the vaccines that you and I are using. We're now using what's called a quadrivalent vaccine. That means that there are four strains of flu in those vaccines. It's pretty standard. That's what we have available here in, in New Hampshire. And why, are we, why did we move from a trivalent to a quadrivalent? We moved to a quad because in... In the 12 years before we moved to the quadrivalent, 50% of the time, the B strain that was in the flu vaccine didn't match with the B strains that we saw in the community. So by adding another B strain, they basically added the two branches to the B tree so that hopefully it will protect people. And again, remember what I told you, the B virus tends to be more serious in kids than in adults. So I love using quad in kids because I want to have that great B protection. All right, so I told you about the live attenuated influenza vaccine, why we're not using it. The injectable last year was around a 63% efficacy. This year, we're seeing about a 48, 49% efficacy. All right, let's talk about measles. So I had a patient come in to my clinic and said I decided not to give um, my kid measles vaccine. Measles vaccine. Um, and you know the reasons. This was the one that was really targeted with autism, right? And you know that that 25 years ago, when it was published, or 22 years ago, was a completely fabricated story. Lancet retracted it. The author admitted to making it all up. But it has set us back in terms of vaccines in my opinion, hundreds of years. So this is the vaccine that has been targeted. So the mom said to me, I'd like my child to develop natural immunity. I said, you, you want your kid to develop natural immunity to measles? Measles kills people. It is a severe, and by the way, if I suspect you have measles, you're quarantined for 28 days. Um, I don't suspect that's what you want to happen. But people, so, so I did this little survey, and, and it's been done across the country that we've, they've asked people, why don't you immunize your kids? And they always say autism and safety concerns, but many parents say, because the vaccines you're giving my kids are mild illness vaccines. <laughs> it is their perception that these illnesses are mild. Why? Because they've never seen them. 
They've never seen polio. They've never seen measles. And so the perception out there, and, and nothing against any of you, I've not seen polio. I was born after polio. Do I take care of people with post-polio syndrome? I do, but I've never seen it. But I still know it's a really bad illness. All right, so measles has been a big deal. The good news is it's slowed down a little bit, but anyone who knows the cycle, when things are big and out there in the media, we tend to see a little bit of an uptick in people getting vaccines, um, and then it kind of goes away a little bit. So we started to see these outbreaks like in 2013, and so there were 159 measles cases in 2013 uh, in this eight-month period. But the reason I wanted this here is look at what they, when they analyzed the numbers, 82% were unvaccinated. Uh, now, a certain percentage of that was unvaccinated because they were too young at the time to receive their vaccine, but it wasn't the majority. The majority were unvaccinated children whose parents had chosen to opt out of vaccines. All right, so that's 2013. Let's go to 2014. One of the largest outbreaks occurred in an area in Ohio. And the reason was, some of you may remember this, there were two uh, individuals from an Amish community in Ohio who went to the Philippines. And by the way, the Philippines is a hotbed of measles. 26,000 cases in one year in the Philippines. So it's a big deal in the Philippines. So they went to the Philippines to do medical mission work. And if you remember, Amish is, uh, uh, Amish traditionally are unvaccinated. They will vaccinate if the benefits outweigh the risk, but traditionally it's an unvaccinated community. So they came back into their community, didn't know they had measles, and infected well over, I think it ended up being over 60 people in that community. And by the way, they all came out in droves to get their vaccine once it was all going on. But I just wanted you to know, big outbreak in Ohio. What ended up happening at the end of the year were over 610 people. This is a disease that is virtually vaccine eliminatable. We could eliminate almost all of these if we could get back to kind of where we were in terms of vaccines previously. So 20 outbreaks, 610 cases, that's a lot for the US. Jump forward to May 2015. Thank you, California Disney. Because this was the outbreak that you all heard about at the, at the amusement park. Ended up, many of them were unvaccinated, but they don't live there. So they've traveled back to their states, and we saw over 20 separate outbreaks uh, in states, etc. And you can see that in 2015, it ended up being, our real big year was 2014, 188 cases. Last year, we were down to 62, which is really good. But again, what we hope is we don't kind of go back up there. But the reason I wanted you to know about this is because so many of us don't think about measles when we see people. I don't think about Haemophilus influenza anymore. I don't think epiglottitis because we just don't see it. So we need to be on guard, particularly all of you who are our first line with these students. I want you to remember it as the three C's, cough, coryza, conjunctivitis, copious draining eyes, copious draining nose. They're coughing, and they look like they have a sunburn on their body. 
It's an erythematous rash that all coalesces together to look like they have a sunburn. And your first big clue is they often come in wearing sunglasses because they have profound photophobia. So photophobia, conjunctivitis, copious draining eyes, cough, and a rash that looks like a sunburn. The other thing I want you to know is that any child that leaves the United States that is under one year of age should be given an MMR prior to leaving the United States if they are six months of age to 11 months. So ideally, remember that we need about two to four weeks to kind of get that vaccine on board and get immunity made. So what I tell parents is if you're going to leave the United States and you're going to take your kid to Mexico, to the United Kingdom, to France, we need to give your child an MMR ideally two to four weeks before your baby leaves the United States. It does not count as shot one. They still need to come back, get one shot at one, and one shot a booster at four to six years of age. But I want you to know that this recommendation exists. The other thing about measles is that about a third of kids and adults will get what are called coplic spots. These are white spots located on the roof or all over their mouth, but often on the roof of their mouth. There isn't a lot that causes these white spots to appear in someone's mouth other than thrush. And with thrush, it's a coating. These are white spots. So be on guard. Think measles. I know you're thinking mumps these days because I can't open a newspaper without hearing about a mump somewhere, but we need to be thinking measles. I am much more worried about measles than I am mumps. I'm certainly worried about mumps, but this is a life-threatening, high febrile illness. Let's go to meningococcal disease. As I tell the staff in my clinic, don't make me have to diagnose this because I promise you I'm probably going to miss it. And I'm going to miss it, particularly if they're adolescents, because by the time they come in to consult with me, they're usually 12 to 14 hours into this illness. 19 hours is when they're generally on a ventilator in DIC. So I've got literally four or five hours to figure this out. So what we need to do with meningococcal disease is we need to identify it quickly. We need to be suspect of it and get these kids out for an evaluation. What's the hard part? It looks like every other virus out there until they've got petechiae and purpura, and then you're not going to miss it because they'll be sick by that point anyways. So 4,000 cases-ish in the United States, 500 deaths on average every year, and it is rapidly progressing. I told you from the onset to the time they're on a ventilator is on average about 19 hours. The death rate in 15 and up is five times higher than it is in kids under 15. And the reason is they tend to come in later into care than what does a five-year-old who's sick. Parents kind of get the sense of, you know, oh, they always get fevers or whatever it may be. Adolescents tend to consult us later than what does a younger child. So the meningitis I'm talking about right now is called Neisseria meningitidis. This remains the leading cause of bacterial meningitis for kids between 2 and 18 years of age in the United States. I want you to know that there are five strains of Neisseria. A, C, Y, W135, and B. Okay? So five main strains, although there are different strains under each of them, there are five main strains. 
When you look at the deaths in adolescents from infectious disease, meningitis remains the leading cause of infectious disease death in the United States. So many of you remember the history with this. How many of you remember kids coming in who, were get, who had just gotten menimmune? Do you remember menimmune? Yeah, so menimmune was a voluntary meningitis vaccine, I want to say, I, I gave 15 years ago. And at that point, many insurances didn't cover it, so it was the richer families that could afford this $80 vaccine. And the good news is we now have vaccines that are provided to us from the state. So many of you remember we, we used to give it only before they went off to college. Then what happened was we backed it down to 11 to 12-year-olds. Why did we do that? Because you can see that the peak starts around 11 to 12, and it lasts, and if you look out here, 17 to 18 years of age. So yes, college is an important time, but high school is important as well. Because we know that none of them are drinking, none of them are sharing marijuana joints, and none of them are sharing lip gloss. If you remember back in Lawrence, Massachusetts, there was an outbreak of meningitis. It was from a shared Diet Coke with a lip gloss. And in Providence, Rhode Island, there was an outbreak, and it was from sh passing a joint around. So sharing a bathroom counter, that's how I always tell people, you have to be in relatively close contact for this. But again, this is life-threatening. So if a child is going to get meningitis, you pray that they get meningitis and not meningococcemia. Meningococcemia has a death rate of 40% or higher. Men meningitis, they may survive. But again, most of these are left with serious complications. So this is a young man I had an opportunity to meet. And this is a young man who was attending summer camp at the Berkshires in Massachusetts. He didn't feel well the day before, had a low-grade fever, but they, he was able to do everything his campmates were doing, and he went off on a hike that day, but came back and said, I just don't feel great, so he went to bed. Woke up the next morning, and the, his campmates said, do you want to go to breakfast? He's like, nah, I don't really feel good. So they left. He decided he's going to get up and meet them over at breakfast, and he collapsed. And the, the camp nurse ran out and uh, lifted his shirt and saw this, not this extent, saw petechiae and purpura, ran back and actually got him, got septriaxone, injected him while they were calling 911. So he was medevaced out, actually taken to Children's Hospital in Boston. He survived. His name is Nick. And I met him at an advisory um, board meeting on meningitis and the importance of meningitis survivors and getting kids vaccinated. He ended up losing both arms and both legs, which they often do because they're in DIC here. And he ended up going on to be a gold medal para-Olympian in wrestling. And he credits the nurse in the Berkshires with saving his life, that had she not done that, he knows he would have likely not survived. But again, this is the face of meningitis. If any of you watch Dancing with the Stars, Amy Purdy, who danced on Dancing with the Stars, um, danced on an artificial leg because they often will lose limbs. So he survived, thank goodness. And again, 80% of all meningitis in the United States is now vaccine preventable. So how are we doing it? All adolescents need two shots, 11 to 12, and they should have a booster of their MCV4 vaccine at 16. That really gives us immunity between that 11 and 15 year old and then that booster shot 
will carry them through the first couple of years of college, which is really a higher risk time as well. Now, if I see them and they have not had any vaccines and they're 16 or older, I'm going to give them one shot and they should be fine up through college. However, a lot of people are taking time off from college. So they're going, in, they're going to be living in a dorm at 20 years of age. If they've not had a booster shot in, since they were 16, I'm, I'm going to booster them. And so, because I want to protect these individuals. Now, for years we've protected them against four strains only because in the United States we've had no ability to protect against strain B. Strain B, historically in the past, was always looked at as a baby meningitis. It is no longer. It's the one you may be hearing about in terms of outbreaks on college campuses. We started hearing about this a bunch of years back. There were four, um, eight cases at Princeton. Then it was followed by UC Santa Barbara. And if you take a look at Men B, you can see over here on the right-hand side, this light blue box is the Men B 18 through 24 in terms of cases. So. A hundred countries across the world had a MenB vaccine. We never did. Now we do. So it is not a mandatory vaccine. I was just talking with the folks from the New Hampshire Immunization Program. We don't have a lot of mandatory vaccines here. Uh, live free or die, baby. Uh, so, but. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be telling people about this vaccine. In our clinic, we made a decision because of the way the CDC came out to say what could be done. We've made the decision to offer the Men B vaccine to all 16 to 18 year olds. And I'll tell you, I have had no one turn me down. It's one of those vaccines that I don't have a hard time getting. When I say meningitis, most people get it. They've heard about it. And this is one of those vaccines that I found is not that hard to get in the arm of kids. So how do we do this? So I told you that there's an MCV4. They get one at 11 to 12. They get one at 16. That's their booster. Then we now have two men B vaccines in New Hampshire. Both of them are available for practices to choose from. So the first one I believe that maybe came out was some uh, a vaccine called Trumemba. When, when it first came out, it was a three-dose series. It's now a two-dose series as long as we're not treating an outbreak. So if the practice used Trumemba, it's two shots, day zero, day six months. The other one that is out that we have access to in New Hampshire is Bexero. It's also a MenB vaccine. That's two doses as well, but it's dosed differently, day zero, day one month. So how we administer these is going to be determined by what vaccine the practices have available. So the FDA approved these vaccines between 10 and 25 years of age. We don't go by FDA approvals. We go by ACIP recommendations. ACIP said you may give it to adolescents. The ideal time to give it is 16 to 18 years of age. So when they come in to get their MCV4 booster in the other arm, I give them one of the MenB vaccines to try to give them optimal protection for college. There was a hand in the back. Yes, ma'am. Is this one of the um, vaccines available through the state? 
Yes, this vaccine is available through the state immunization program. And because I'm a family practice, we also private purchase for our 19 and up because it is FDA approved. So once they're beyond the state age over 19, we can also use this if they're heading off to college as well. Okay? All right. So let me start out by telling you that I'm going to go down a very murky road as I speak to you about tick-borne illnesses. I'm going to tell you that if I took 100 of these Dartmouth folks up here and I lined them all up, they will all give you some very different opinion about what they believe about Lyme. I'm just picking on Dartmouth because I'm here. But that happens all over the state. And there are people that have lots of really strong beliefs about Lyme. So the first thing that I'm going to tell you is that I don't know everything about this. I'm going to tell you that I could close my primary care clinics, only treat patients with Lyme disease, take cash for it, and I would probably be much more financially off than we are doing primary care. Because there's a lot of hysteria there's also a lot of people who are willing to take a lot of cash from a lot of people with limited evidence of any disease. So with that said, I'm going to tell you that if I went to the rheumatology department here or I went to infectious disease, they're going to cite the IDSA, Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, slash the CDC. Those are the guidelines that most infectious disease people use that most uh, rheumatology practices use, and that many primary care providers use. But I also want you to know that there's another set of guidelines out there, and it's called ILADS. This stands for International Lyme and Associated Disease Specialists. For the first time ever, Johns Hopkins announced last year that they're going to be opening a tick-borne illness center. And it's already open. They're going to be conducting research there so that we have evidence about the implications of tick-borne illnesses. Because if you've been following what's going on, the CDC has also come out to say we way under, underestimated the degree of tick-borne illnesses. So I don't need to tell you all that we're historically in the top three, New Hampshire and Vermont top one through three states for tick-borne illnesses reported. So this is a real hotbed. And if you look and you talk to the people, who the wildlife people, they will tell you that at any given moment, a tick, a deer in the state of New Hampshire has six to 700 ticks living on it at any given moment. And so when they're eating your then they're so beautiful and they're out in your yard. I just want you to know that each of them has 600 ticks on it. <laughs> and all 600 of them, and they are beautiful. I, I was driving down the road this morning and seven of them walked out of my driveway. Um, so I lock my child up in my basement because I really, I, I do fear Lyme disease, I have to tell you. So, um, so of those 600, 60% are Lyme-carrying ticks. And 25% carry other co-infections, Bartonella, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, 
Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And we had a patient in our clinic who the CDC called me after the guy ends up on a ventilator, has a seizure. Uh, and the patient had Jamestown Cannon virus and some other virus. And we were like the first in New Hampshire to ever have that. So I will tell you that there's so much that we just don't know about some of these tick-borne illnesses. That's my opinion. So what we do know is that Lyme is transmitted through uh, it's a spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi. It's a spirochete. It's transmitted through certain ticks, and we often call them deer ticks here. We've known about Lyme disease well before Lyme, Connecticut, but in the United States, it's been known about in Germany for many, many years. But it can affect many, many systems. It's not just a rash on the skin. It can cause a heart block. It can cause Bell's palsy. One third of all cases of Bell's palsy in the United States is now the result of Lyme disease or Borrelia. So we do know that it can affect a, a bunch of systems. This is a wood tick, everyone. This is not a deer tick. It's too big. This is a, this is a wood tick. You and I called them wood ticks or dog ticks when we were little. This is your typical deer tick. This is a mama, generally. She's bigger. She's got a little red backing to her. Her nymph, which she's starting to lay or going to have next month, April, May, uh, is a fourth the size of that. They're one millimeter in size. They're tan. And many people that I see have no idea that they have been in, bitten or infected because not everyone develops erythema migrans, which is the Lyme, the rash of Lyme disease. As I tell my patients, you develop this rash, you are lucky because that meant your body mounted a response to the bite and I know what I'm dealing with. It's the people who don't develop the rash that then come in later and who can be very, very ill. 50% of people will develop flu-like symptoms following a tick bite. They'll ache all over, but many of us chalk it up to just aching all over and having some type of virus. Now, Lyme, as I mentioned, we're no longer talking about it in stages, but the flu symptoms are first with the rash, and then if it's not treated, people can progress on to migratory joint pain. People with Lyme will, unlike rheumatoid, with rheumatoid they'll tell you it's both hands, it's both ankles, it's both feet. With Lyme they'll say to you, my left, my right elbow, my left knee, and it moves. So it tends to be more migratory. The one thing I will tell you is, you ever see a child with a single swollen knee, no trauma, just an effusion of that knee and it's warm, they need to be evaluated for Lyme disease because Lyme loves the knee. And so we tend to see an atraumatic swollen knee, that's our signal. I had a 19-year-old girl sent in by her oral surgeon because her pulse was slow. She walked into my office with a pulse of 29. She was in a heart block, it was Lyme related. So it can cause Lyme meningitis, Lyme encephalitis. There are complications. The good news is we don't see a lot of that, but we can see it occurring. So, all right, so I talked about those presentations. I just want to show you. This is called erythema migrans, bullseye appearance, bite in the center, clearing, and then an area around it. We had a kid in our office who had more than 25 of these all over their body. I actually called one of my mentors who taught me about Lyme, and I, Dr. Danta, he's out of Boston, and I said to him, you need to help me with this. I've never seen disseminated migraines like this. He said, oh, Wendy, she's going to do great. Because the more of those they mount, he said, 
the better they do in terms of their response to antibiotics. And when I tell you this kid, within 48 hours, she was turning the corner. But again, it's called disseminated migraines, and we can see it. A third of all Bell's palsy in the United States can be linked with Lyme disease. So what I do in my clinic now is, you come in with a Bell's palsy, we give you high-dose steroids. We no longer use an antiviral. It hasn't been shown to be beneficial, so we'll use high-dose steroids. I get a Lyme test on them, and I'll start Doxy while I'm waiting for their Lyme to come back. Because we've seen so much Bell's palsy, um, and these folks are often, here's a case in our clinic. One of my MPs is doing a well visit on a 28-year-old man, and she says to him, do you know you have a tick on your back? He's like, I don't know I have a tick on my back. So she literally removes the tick, 48, and starts him on antibiotics, because it was clearly in, in, gulge, uh, in um, engorged, and starts him on antibiotics, and 24 hours later, he comes in with the worst Bell's palsy I have ever seen in my life. It took him about eight months to fully be able to close that eye and smile, etc. So we do know it's linked. We also know it can cause carditis. So here's where it gets controversial. CDC says... Two-step testing for Lyme. You start with a titer. If that's positive, you confirm with the Western blot. Same kind of thing we do when we're doing HIV testing. ILAD says that's false. ILAD says go straight to a Western blot. So there's a lot of controversy about what to do. Lots of the Lyme folks will go straight to a Western blot. And what, they, what ILAD says is that two-step testing fails to detect up to 90% of all chronic or acute cases. And CDC says in order to be considered positive on a Western blot, you need five IgGs or two out of three IgMs. ILAD says they think that's crap as well. They say, why should it be five and two? Their response is, why shouldn't it be the bands that are actually the more specific line bands, and why do you need five? Why wouldn't four be a diagnosis? So I think what I'm telling you is just know that there needs to be a lot more research on this and that there are two ways to kind of approach this situation. So the CDC says amoxicillin for kids under eight Doxy is what we use over the age of eight years of age. A mox under eight because we don't want to see the graying of the teeth. The CDC also says in an area like ours, if the tick is partially engorged and it's been on under 24 hours, Doxy 200 as a single dose should be all these folks need. ILAD says they disagree. ILADS also says they believe that there is something called chronic Lyme that they believe that there are people who could benefit from antibiotics longer than being on for 21 to 28 days. I actually heard someone speak about this, and they said, you know, it's funny. We give minocycline for acne for six months, yet you literally have to sell your soul to get more than 21 days of doxy for Lyme disease. So I don't know what the answer is. I just wanted you to know that there are two really different opinions out there. The issue that I have, and I'm willing to treat people, I'm willing to treat people aggressively, but I won't treat people with negative testing. Because I have a lot of people who come in who have absolutely no bans whatsoever on Western blot who say, I want you to treat me. And I'm not doing it, and I'm not do going down that road. A lot of people are putting pick lines in people. I'm not doing that either. It's just way beyond 
what I feel comfortable with. But I want you to know that I do have patients who have picked lines in. It's just not something I'm ordering. It's they're doing it with other folks, et cetera. It's just beyond what I know and what I do. So I just want you to know, though, about some additional tick-borne illnesses because it's no longer just Lyme here in, in New Hampshire. There's something called what we used to call Ehrlichia. We now call it anaplasmosis. And it's transmitted by the black-legged tick or the lone star tick. So where are these ticks located? You can see the entire eastern seaboard and over into the upper peninsula of Michigan, around the Illinois, Michigan area, and down into Texas. So we are in a place where we do see anaplasmosis. Anaplasmosis, by the way, is a flu-like syndrome. So they tend to come in with fever, chills, low platelet count, low white count, and often elevated liver enzymes. So I'm pretty suspect of this if I have someone with flu-like symptoms. We can, we can diagnose this on a PCR blood test, so through a commercial lab. The problem is the commercial testing that we have available is not fabulous. It's not 100% sensitive or specific. The treatment for anaplasmosis is actually the same treatment as Lyme, so we actually use Doxy. Now, babesiosis, babesiosis is a parasite, and it's also transmitted by the same tick, the black-legged tick. They have fever chills. What is often a clue for us is drenching night sweats with babesia. They can also develop a pretty profound anemia because it can attack their red blood cells. This one is a little bit tougher treatment, and again, the blood test that we do does not really always pick it up. It's something called mepron with azithromycin, and we treat for about seven to 10 days. Again, this is straight from the CDC's website. In kids, generally, uh, clindamycin is the drug that's used in kids. Have you heard of a condition called cat scratch fever? Have you heard of that before? We now call it Bartonella. It's also a tick-borne illness. can be detected in a blood test as well. And fever, chills, headache, severe pain of the tibia. So they often come in with what seems like shin splints, but they're sick. There's a lot of pain in their tibia with this. Sore throat, rash. The treatment is azithromycin for this. So again, just want you to know that there's more than just Lyme disease, that we are seeing other tick-borne illnesses. Let's wrap this up. I have only a few more slides, and I think I have about five minutes left. Hepatitis B. Hepatitis B, many of you may have heard that there was recently a bill that was introduced in the legislation in New Hampshire legislators to actually not make Hep B a mandatory vaccine. It, the folks from the immunization program just told me it did not pass, which is great. So we are still giving Hep B, and CDC has come out to say Hep B should also be given to within the, the first dose within the first 24 hours of life. There are a lot of people that are refusing that first shot in the hospital, and we need to get back to getting that first shot because what we're finding is a lot of these kids get missed because they didn't get the first shot in the hospital and people are assuming that they are. I also want you to know, we've done a huge um, initiative in our clinic. We now have 80% of our patients with diabetes that are immunized against Hep B, but all individuals with Hepatitis B should be immunized, uh, I'm sorry, with diabetes, should be immunized against Hep B. 
if they've not been previously immunized. Well, we've been giving Hep B for what, 25, 26 something years? So all of the kids should be immunized, but any of you in this room who might have diabetes, if you've not gotten your Hep B, which I suspect most of you have because you're nurses, you need to. 19 to 59. Now, why is the CDC recommending this? Because people with diabetes are two to four fold more likely to go on to develop hep, contract hep B in a hospital or a long-term care facility due to sharing of devices used to, to uh, check glucose. And last but not least, many of you may remember 2014 when we had this virus or this infection that was going around in the summer and fall. I bet a lot of you saw these kids in the summer fall of 2014 that had such severe asthma-like symptoms. Do any of you remember this? We now know that it was the result of something called an enterovirus D68. Uh, this is not a new virus. It's usually associated with the common cold, but it can uh, present with more severe respiratory infections. I'm telling you this because we just had a little bit of an outbreak of D68 in the Netherlands. So it's only a matter of time, people say, before we see something similar to this again. Just to give you a sense, there were 700 cases back in August to October. And the kids actually had very severe asthma symptoms. You can see here 691 people, 46 states. Um, the treatment is aggressive asthma treatment, but many of these kids ended up having to be hospitalized because they were so severe, they were wheezing, et cetera. We can actually diagnose it through a nasopharyngeal swab. So this is the outbreak this past summer in the Netherlands. This tends to be um, a this tends to be a summer fall virus, but eight adults, 17 children, severe respiratory symptoms. But did any of you remember back in 2014 hearing about a case in, the, in New Hampshire of a young boy who developed a polio-like syndrome? This is enterovirus that did this. So um, one case of flaccid myelitis, but in 2014 in the United States, there were 120 kids predominantly in the U.S. that developed this polio-like syndrome. And this child in New Hampshire, I remember seeing him on the news a year later. It had taken him almost a year to learn to rewalk again, et cetera. So be aware, Entero 68, we now know, is, is the cause. And for those of you that are junkies like me and like to know what's going on in the world from a contagious perspective, because I just want to remind you as you're heading off to your April break, we really are only one plane ride away from the next infectious pandemic. Um, but it's called Contagion Live. And it gives you down, you can see over here, it actually shows you like different bars and it tells you what's going on worldwide. So I hope that this has been a helpful talk for you this morning and has helped hopefully piqued your interest. I have one minute because I don't want to take up the speaker's time. I'm just going to disconnect. What can I answer for you as I'm taking down my laptop? Yes, ma'am. Um, what is your take on with Lyme disease? Um, with the conventional antibiotic or um, homeopathic. So what is my take on Lyme versus homeopathic versus conventional treatment? I believe that if I diagnose you with Lyme or you have erythema migrans, my belief is you should go on an antibiotic. Then after that, if you choose not to stay on that antibiotic once we've done the 28 days, that is absolutely your choice. I just have patients that come to me on $1,000 a month worth of supplements that 
um, could be snake oil for all I know, because there's absolutely no regulation of any of those supplements that they're taking. And people don't know that. Um, and people will sell you snake oil. So, so that's kind of my take. Oh, keep talking. I'm just... Go ahead. With all the, the adolescent girls being diagnosed with SDLs, why is it that there's no recommended testing for adolescent yeah, so the question is, why is there no recommended testing? What you have to prove is what's, what, that by putting a program in like that, that by screening these boys, you're going to decrease the sequelae in girls. Now, that would make sense, right? But you have to be able to demonstrate that scientifically. Do I think that at some point we'll move to screening all adolescents? I do. But you have to think about girls. Girls end up having the most sequelae. So if I pick it up in a girl... I'm going to prevent her, hopefully, from developing PID and infertility. But by treating the boy, there may be another boy that didn't get screened. So what you really want to go after, it's kind of like f for a while we only gave HPV to girls. How come? Because we got cervical cancer. And we couldn't prove that by giving it to boys, we could reduce the cervical cancer rates in girls. We still haven't even proven that. So what you do is you go after the target people who suffer the most sequelae. And then you suture their vagina. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding. That's so illegal. So illegal. One more question, and I have to get off the stage. Yes. Is the quadrivalent influence vaccine a high-dose vaccine also? No. So the quadrivalent is available in all ages except for the high dose. The high dose is still trivalent as of this year. So if you were to ask me and say, I'm 65 years of age, should I get the quad or should I get the trivalent high dose? I would tell you get the trivalent high dose because that has demonstrated to give you better immune response. And we now have outcome data to support that that's a good option. It is going to go quadrivalent within the next couple of years. So there will be a quadrivalent high dose. Thank you all so much. Enjoy the rest of your conference.